Welcome to a very special episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Y'all, never have I ever on this podcast had a moment where someone finished telling a story or sharing an anecdote where my ego didn't feel like it had something that it could add that would make it better. And on this podcast, probably four times, Sarah Sullivan dropped some motherfucking fire that was so hot that all I could do was just be quiet. It, y'all, this, I still kind of can't, you know what I'm saying? Like, just check it out. Sarah um, has worked in the Obama administration at the White House for six years. And then she uh, really had her life seized by Lyme disease. And then she shares her story of navigating that, which is incredibly powerful. And then when she went through that long, dark night of the soul, she came back up for air and decided that she was going to help uh, reform foster care. And so a part of that function led her to collecting the direct stories of hundreds of children who had actually lived through foster care. And then you're going to hear what she did with those stories. And it is one of the most powerful podcasts that I've ever done. Like I'm still kind of in shock at what came through. If you want to support the podcast, sign up for my newsletter, The Feasting Fridays at ericgazzi.com and share this podcast with people that you think it will help or that it will resonate with. I love you all so much. This is such a special episode. Buckle the motherfucking up. I don't even know if that's a functional sentence, but you know what I mean. And you're probably going to cry a couple of times. I love you all. Sarah, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, I like to give a little story sometimes before I start going straight into asking questions. And the intensity and brilliance of your mind is that as soon as I give you free reign to start talking, I might not get the opportunity to tell this story again. So <laughs> I have to step in here quickly. Um, you and I met through Fit for Service. It's a mastermind that I'm a coach for. And you, every once in a while, there would be someone who joins where the way that they meet me, there's almost this felt sense of like, I don't need to say this out loud, but... Um, I don't need to find anything here necessarily. I'm interested in just seeing what is here. And I actually truly believe that I have things that I can offer here, but I'm not going to force it. And there are some people that force it who for sure are spiritually bypassing the work. You were one of the few people I've ever met who came with that energy and it felt authentic. And a part of me was like, oh, wow, I need to have a conversation with her. And the masterminds are savage in the sense of like, you have to be aggressive with the coaches to get a moment, even if the coaches want to have a moment with you. And I'm constantly getting better on my boundaries of being like, I'm talking to someone and just being like, all right, can you stop talking to me? I get, you know, there's, a, but you were tenacious, but not in a way that felt like it felt clean. And it felt like you knew that you were serving something that was bigger and uh, it was unique. And then we, we finally got a moment and we sat down and we started talking and just boom, 
you were essentially sharing how you were using or seeing how you could use the research that I had been sharing recently around things like trauma and like internal family systems and some of the psychological stuff, how you were actually attempting to use that in governmental transformation, which is at a deep root that I don't get to scratch often. Like that's the ultimate end goal on some level is like, how can we cultivate enough inner resilience to now go grok the world well enough to actually make a change that actually helps. And so that was the beginning of this really interesting, like beginning of a conversation that's still really continuing. And this is the first time we're getting the opportunity to articulate it in a way where it's recorded. And I'll let you, and we'll get to this part of your story, but what you have done is some of the coolest shit I have ever seen. <laughs> and we will get to that point. But first, we're going to get a little bit into your myth because it's what allowed you to get to this point. So I'm going to put that teaser in and say thank you for coming on the podcast. Wow. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for being so generous with your attention and that introduction. And I know it's been a little, a little while in the making, and I'm just so glad to be here. Absolutely. What do you remember being your first memory? My go-to, I feel like, first memory is the first day of kindergarten. I remember the lunchbox and the, like, the moment of separation from the parents walking into the school. In retrospect, I can recall things that happened before that, but like, what feels like my first memory is that. And what's the emotional life. tone with that memory? It's not, you know, what you might imagine like sadness or fear or something, but there is a kind of sobriety, I think, around like, this is different now. Mm. <laughs> what do you remember being the first story that really captured you? Um, a thing that I've observed is children as young as like three or four, they'll find a movie or a book and they demand that it be played or read to them every day for a <laughs> long time. Uh, what was yours? I obsessively would watch the same films, like rather than watching many, many different ones, I'd watch um, several. So, But the one that 100% undoubtedly takes the cake is The Wizard of Oz. And I mean, I watched it so many times the VHS broke more than one time. Wow. Yeah. And um, there's this moment that my mother felt like she had a genius child where I could recite like scenes on end playing both characters um, and she would record them at like five or something. So wow. that was my, that was probably my proudest moment um, <laughs> was that, um, but without a doubt, The Wizard of Oz. I'm going to put a pin in that and I'm not going to ask the second part of that question until we get to the end of the podcast. So both Graham and you help me remember that I want to finish that, but it feels poignant that I wait. Okay. So we've got a lot of really dope shit to talk about on this podcast. And so I'm going to kind of like speed up how I normally do this. And cool. what I imagine is that you very early found like, oh, this is what I'm going to go do. And then I'm going to go crush it. And you went and you started crushing it and you eventually got sick. Can you kind of tell us the story as it naturally comes out of you of like, what was the, this is what I'm going to do in the world. And then you started doing it and then how it led to you beginning to experience the 
really spiritual illness that you encountered. And I'd love for you just to tell that story however it wants to emerge through you. Okay, yeah. Um, my parents gave me an incredible gift, which was the knowing that success isn't money, but it's service. Mm. And so I got to skip a lot of chapters that a lot of people have to go through wow. and knew all along that it was that it was service. And I'll spare their story, but I got to grow up as their child with them um, radically transforming the place that we lived. Um, I'll just leave it with a, a, a good one-liner, which is they discovered they didn't like where they lived, so they built a new town. Wow. <laughs> and I grew up with parents that designed from scratch a place where they asked themselves with every design decision they made. My dad was a tax attorney. My mom was a social worker. With every design decision they made, they asked themselves, how could we strengthen the fabric of the community with this design choice? God damn. I'm start I can feel I want to cry. That's incredible. The width of the sidewalks, the placement of the front doors, where the businesses are. Wow. So that's the context I grew up in. <laughs> yeah. And so I always knew community is if you only got one answer on a test, community should be the answer. Mm. <laughs> like it's the... God, you should have a fucking <laughs> podcast. Keep going. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh. <laughs> so that's the context I grew up in. And at some... Oh, here's the truth. This is why I told you this, I realized. My parents were doing as private citizens what I realized the whole time the government should be doing. And at the same time, they got a ton of flack from the government for what they were doing. So I was pissed off because my parents were killing themselves and the government was giving them a hard time and I was mad daughter. But I also was like, why do my parents as private citizens who are routinely making choices that are against their private self-interest, making bad business decisions, which my dad would argue were not bad business decisions, but they would make choices that would lend themselves to a short, a smaller bottom line because it was right for the community. Mm -hmm. And that's not what business, quote unquote, is supposed to do. My dad would argue it is what business is supposed to do. But the, the story of business that what we're told is that that's not what business is supposed to do. So I'm like, why are we putting my parents in a situation where as business people, they are doing the kind of behavior that the government should just be doing? And those lines of questioning is what had me most oriented toward government reform, is that basically I saw my parents killing it as a private citizens and seeing in, inside government was a mess and that we needed some good people inside government. In short, that was how I was always positioned, I think, for government being the most likely place for me to work to change. Um, I always say government is not the only place to change the world, but to me it was the most obvious place. And so that looked like, you know, organizing in high school and, and you know, before I could vote, doing all these parties to get other people to vote who could vote and, you know, interning in Congress and stuff. And then I went to college and worked at the State House in Boston where I went to school. I ran for office at 21. Get on. And didn't win, but felt like I had, at that point was really energizing me at that particular moment was young Americans' issues and how I felt like there was this body of issues really impacting young Americans that just weren't getting any attention. And at that point, it's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to remember, but at that point, no one was talking about the price of college. You know, and I saw that as a major issue. And so I was running on that. I didn't win. I was still in school. But I thought to myself, okay, 
And, and in the process, I learned all of these barriers from firsthand account about what the barriers were to being a young candidate, what the barriers were to young people voting and accessing the political system and everything. And I said, okay, well, I got all this information. Who would want to know it? And I said, okay, well, the person who's the most outspoken on young Americans' issues today, who is that person? Barack Obama. And he was president. And I said, okay, I'm going to go tell Barack Obama what I know because maybe he will care. And so at that point, I went to the White House in 2011. And what kind of got my foot in the door was I was a writer. I had been writing in the Massachusetts State House for some time. And so that's kind of what earned my keep. But I spent my after hours trying to organize around this set of issues. That's what really brought me there. And um, ultimately, you know, stayed as a writer and kind of did my background activism thing when ultimately I intersected with um, something called the United States Digital Service. I'll tell you briefly and then get to the, the illness part. But basically in that, in that process of these years of writing for President Obama and kind of thinking about engagement, what I began to become somewhat disillusioned about the way the government engages people because that's kind of the portfolio of what my interests fell under is that we need to be engaging young people to learn about their issues and then advocate for them and that kind of falls under engagement but I started to become somewhat disillusioned by the way the government does that and I'll spare you all that but it looks a lot alike round tables with the president that you got invited to 23 hours in advance for your five minutes with the president and then not a lot happens after that and I'm like well, that's not really the engagement that I'm here for. That's not really what I meant. And during this time, um, when I was writing, uh, a website called healthcare.gov launched and crashed on its face. And this was a very bad moment for President Obama. Most people don't remember, but it was October 1st, 2013, which was the day that healthcare.gov launched and crashed. It was also the first day of a government shutdown. So there were literally no employees in town to save the website. In fact, it's illegal to go to the office when a government shutdown is happening. And to say he had no one to call on that day, he had no one to call. Long story short is they put together this ragtag team of friends of friends from the private sector, because you could do that, to come in and quote unquote save the site. And all of that's a very good story, but in short, that's what happened. And President Obama, the dust kind of settled, open enrollment ended, things got a little less tense. They kind of nuts and bolts that band-aided it through the open enrollment season and and then, as everyone believes, saved the Affordable Care Act because um, it's very much known that if if that website had not endured, Republicans would have used the next season to kill the law. So keeping the website up felt critical to that administration and to people getting health care. And anyway, but President Obama didn't like that moment too much. And so when the dust settled, he said, um, yeah, some of those people who like helped us fix that site, I want some of those people around. And um, the good news is people had been thinking about this issue of true government engagement and the technology issues for a long time. And so people, really smart people put forward a plan for something called the United States Digital Service. He said, I like that plan. Let's do that. The idea was we were going to bring 15 people from Google, Facebook, Twitter to come do this tour of duty inside of the White House to work on three projects. I came over from the writing job to be the chief of staff of that. I heard about that. And it was one of those moments in time where I am sure that I would have continued living had I not worked there, but I can't imagine how. Part of what I was put on this earth to do was to be at that place at that time. Mm -hmm. And so I go over as chief of staff. We we're going to be 15 people. 
But it turned out we stumbled on a model that kind of worked. And so by the end of that administration, we were 200 people working on 40 projects across the federal government that are all the most important citizen-facing services, like veterans getting access to benefits and students getting student loans and just the nuts and bolts services of the government that obviously everyone has a shit time accessing as kind of a universal experience. So that's what that's what we were doing. And I was kind of helping to stand up the culture and spirit and organization of that thing. Meanwhile, under the surface of all of this, um, while I was living the absolute dream and love of my life, I got really, really sick. And in truth, I had had symptoms that started when I was in high school with a first major symptom at 16, a second major symptom at 20 in college. But at 25, I'd become really ill. And from those years between 16 to 25, I I had sought out the conventional path. I had, you know, basically every 18 months or so, my mother would kind of freak out, send me to a specialist. I'd go. They wouldn't have anything. Do you mind if I ask what the uh, three symptoms were? The first symptom at 16 was this chronic rash. And that was annoying, but not really interrupting the of the life. At 20, I got a chronic eye infection, like chronic conjunctivitis, and that did begin to disrupt things. I had like chronic discharge from the eye, an incredible amount of pain in the whole eye area. And yeah, it made, it made um, what I was told is that um, I had these bumps under my eyelids, like there was an infection. And the bumps on the eyelids actually scratched the surface of the eye, making every blink painful. And luckily, there was a good Band-Aid that I accidentally stumbled on, which was contact lenses. And contact lenses acted like the shield for my eyeball, which made that bearable. Um, Interestingly, the symptoms came off in reverse order that they went on, which is to say the newest symptoms came off first and the oldest symptoms came off last. And I'm jumping ahead of the story, but the two symptoms I still have remaining are this eye issue and the rash. And it is still true, despite how well I am, that if I didn't have contact lenses, I couldn't function. Oh. Um, we're going to heal that one too, but it's just taking a sweet, sweet time. <laughs> and so what was the symptom when you were 25? In 25, I started to get really tired. Um. And it was in particular ways, so I couldn't, like, I didn't notice at first, but I started to get really, really tired. And, and so at that point, I had, I had sought out a naturopath and began working with a naturopath. And we did a lot of really good work together. She diagnosed me with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which a year or so later, I found out I had been diagnosed with earlier, but a doctor left it to me on a voicemail. And oh. I am a millennial, and I didn't listen to my voicemail for two years. <laughs> but in the meantime, a naturopath diagnosed me with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and the, but the big thing was I was diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. And so we began um, kind of an aggressive, natural treatment for healing the Lyme disease. And at this point, I was working at the United States Digital Service. So I was, I was well into the White House years, and I was at the USDS time. In fact, the week that I started treating the Lyme disease was the week, the week I started. And the narrative about chronic Lyme disease, um, which just for the listeners, believe me, I know a lot of the controversy around 
how chronic Lyme disease is or isn't. So I know all that. But a lot of the narrative around that is that you will get sicker before you get better, which is exactly what happened to me. And I walked down a path where over the course of the next few years, the entirety of my time working at the White House, I fell much, much sicker. And what started with those three important but three symptoms um, became just the beginning of a long list of things that happened. Um, developed full, systemic, intense body pain, which you could call fibromyalgia, serious digestive issues, which I had never had before, the fatigue that intensified and dialed up, um, a symptom which there is a name for, which I forget what it is, but I have to sleep for extended periods of time, like 14 hours, and, and I could sleep 12 or 14 hours a night consistently, um, but didn't have the time to do that at that time. Um, insomnia, when trouble sleeping, which when I never had that before, um, anxiety, depression, um, you know, pretty good host of stuff. But the main thing was extreme fatigue, insatiable, absolutely insatiable fatigue and really strong pain. So that was developing in the context of while I was living the life of my dreams and so happy. And um, I wasn't, I absolutely knew it was happening, but I was sold this story, which is that you'll get sicker before you get better. So I was just kind of on the path. So I wasn't really intellectually struggling with it because exactly what my doctor said would happen to me is what happened to me. And yeah, I just got sicker over time, but I knew this was the die off and the way the process goes and like all this kind of stuff. All of it made sense in, in that, in that lane. Um, and in truth, I was living such a big full life that um, even though I was really active about the health and doing so much stuff, you know, I remember these times I would go, you know, to get, I was doing various IV protocols and I would go at eight in the morning and they'd take for fucking ever, you know, and I'd, I'd always have them do it in my left arm so I could send emails in my, from work on my right hand. I remember this time, this one's really funny, but um, there was a time <laughs> when I was doing these series of colonics and I have never told anyone and now I will tell it here. Perfect. That I would sometimes send emails while doing those colonics. <laughs> and I'm like, if people on the other side only knew where our White House was being run. Um, <laughs> if my friends knew how many of them got emails from me when I'm taking a shit. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of that vibe, you know. And I was, it was probably the top three priority in my life, my health. But priority number one was taking all the space. And I remember a time that I went out to dinner on a Saturday with my closest like non-work girlfriend at that time. And she was like, oh, how was your week? And I was like, oh, it was good, but it was a really hard week with Lyme. And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, with the Lyme disease. And she said, you have Lyme disease. She was my closest girlfriend, you know. And I just was so full with the other things that I was doing that I wasn't even telling anybody. And I always had the blessing and the curse of an invisible illness. So wow. nobody knew. It's so weird. I could be in the most excruciating pain. It's like forgetting to tell someone that it's raining outside. But in this case, you have to tell them, you know, which makes things really lonely in a lot of ways. Um, but it's also a blessing because on the days you don't want it to be about you, you they don't have to know. So that was going on. Pretty much no one I worked with, even though I was kind of like in many ways, I'll just say many people 
called me the beating heart of that organization. And still out of 200 people, maybe three people knew, you know, and again, it wasn't that it was so much private. It just was, everything else was big. And so I was political appointee in the Obama administration, which meant my job was up the same moment that President Obama's job was done, which was January 20th, 2017. And experiencing the end of a presidential administration is like jumping off the edge of a cliff. You, Anybody who tells you they know what's on the other side is lying to you. And they know they're lying to you. They just want to give you an answer. Nobody knows. It's like one day is the busiest day of your whole life, and the next day there's nothing on the calendar forever. And it's a very odd experience. It's deeply, um, takes a big heart to go through that experience. It's mm. a big, if you do it with an open heart, it's a tremendously heart opening experience. And it was for me, um, to go through the end of that. And then on the other side of that jump, I had assumptions about what the other side might have. Um, but I was lying to myself. And once I had the space to kind of have the calm for a minute, what really emerged in those days and weeks following the transition of government was the realization that I was very, very sick. Mm. And that unfortunately, after everything I had done, I was much sicker. And now I had a problem because I was starting to lose faith in the you get sicker before you get better narrative and was starting to feel like even if that is the truth, I don't want to get sicker anymore. I would like to get better. Can I ask a quick question for uh, clarity and anchoring? What was the aggressive holistic protocol that you had been doing? It was a bunch of herbs for the most part that are antibacterial and antimicrobial and antiparasitic and all this stuff to to kill bugs. Um, Had you changed your diet? What, what, was that a part? Prior to getting really sick, I had gotten deep into food as medicine and had... Um, really, really cleaned up the diet and lost some weight and stopped getting cold and flus and like felt like I knew what health was. Um, and of course, that's exactly when I got really ill, um, which I can never fully explain. But I will say, thank God I had had that experience because it's part of what had taught me in my bones that we can heal. Yeah, there's a really interesting thing that I find uh, with the psyche when I work with people and like trauma comes up eventually is it's almost like there's an intelligence in the psyche that can feel what the ego can handle it will repress for you as long as possible the thing that would destroy the ego until the ego gets strong enough where it can now begin to absorb and integrate and that i would imagine because the psyche is of the body the body might operate under a similar principle and it's almost like it had to wait for your body to get healthy enough to feel the full expression of the disease. I think that there's a lot of truth in that. Sometimes I, I would make sense of it to say I had to get well enough to get sick. Like I had to get well enough to deal with the garbage that was under there. Because if you still have colds and flus, and I was highly allergic to gluten and dairy, which I was eating all the time, if you're bombarding your system with all that stuff, how is it going to deal with the deeper issue? Yeah. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said. So you decide, I don't want to get sicker. I don't really want to get sicker anymore. Plus, I'm kind of losing faith in all of this anyway. And I see my doctor for the first time since the inauguration, and she reveals that she's kind of losing faith too. Oh, Jesus. And I'm like, well, if you're gone, I'm definitely gone. I was hanging on by a thread, you know. And so now I'm super lost 
because I have the scaffolding intellectually that I've built up around what the disease is, how it relates, what I'm doing, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And now in an instant, that scaffolding all falls down. And so now I'm 100% lost. I don't know if I agree with the diagnosis that I've had. I don't know how to treat it. I don't know if we've done, we've done from several years that made me sicker was right or wrong, which is a pretty big pill to swallow. Could it be wrong, you know? So I'm just class A lost, right? And so, and I'm full-time unemployed, so I'm full-time health stuff, which is a good way to also make you go pretty crazy. And now, like before when I would consume health information, I would know how to relate to it because I'm like, here's where it fits into the scaffolding and I'll do it or I won't do it and here's why and why not. But now nothing made sense anymore. Yeah, I didn't encounter a new piece of information. I'm like, maybe that's right or maybe it's wrong. I have no idea for me, you know. And nothing would stick because I didn't know what made sense. But an idea came into my head and I had known a bit about fasting. But an idea came into my head that said, okay, well, you have all these digestive issues May, which, we, which we were treating, but was never the, the tip of the spear. And I said, well, maybe the digestive issues were the core issue all along. And maybe I healed the digestive issues. And I knew about the benefits of fasting for that. And I had a doctor who I really, really trust who wrote a book about fasting. And so I read that book really fast. And I Ooh, said- that was a pun. You thought it was oh going to get past God. me. Oh my God. Sorry, go on. <laughs> Sorry. So I read that book really fast. I decide I want to go on a long water fast to heal my digestive issues. Um, my doctor agrees to supervise me. It's kind of the last thing we do together. She knew I was interested in fasting up to 30 days. And I, she said she'd give her blessing a week at a time. So there I am home in my apartment in Washington, D.C. with a lot of these Mountain Valley spring waters, um, which get really hard to carry when you haven't eaten in a long time. <laughs> and I'm in my apartment and the week's Good. I definitely did way more the first week than you should do on a long water fast, like go on a couple dates. But anyway, I Get did. <laughs> Side note, I went on this date with this guy a couple times during that time. And he was like, I don't want to mansplain food to you, but I'm concerned. <laughs> I was like, I'm fine. I promise. And <laughs> I was into week two of the fast when things started to change. And I started to feel really bad. I was very, very dizzy, which I anticipated because that's basically the number one side effect of a long fast like that. But I was like, is this too much dizzy or the right amount of dizzy? I don't know. And I started, it started to feel like things really shifted. And so I began to ask myself the question as it was feeling like maybe this wasn't right anymore. Am I helping? And this is how you feel on... 10 days with no food or am I killing myself? And I didn't know the answer to the question. So for about a half day, that kind of swirled around in me. Am I helping or am I killing myself? And now my will for the fast was starting to break, which is when it's, you know, then everything starts to spiral. And I'm asking myself this question, am I helping or am I hurting myself? I don't know. Um, and, and a half day is a long time when you're starving. Yeah. And then by yourself. And and I feel both, no, I feel small and weak in front of you. Please go on. (laughs) Because that third day is like the hardest thing ever. I can't imagine day 10. Oh, God. So anyway, I'm on day 10. And there I am somewhere, you know, just because my life, you know, likes to make it very, very straightforward. Me, I'm on my knees. I feel like I was naked, but I don't know that I was. I just feel like I was. I was on my knees, maybe naked, 
in the kitchen holding a piece of locally grown organic lettuce that I had bought for the moment of fast breaking. And I ask myself again, am I helping or am I killing myself? And finally, my answer blurted out of me, which was, I don't know. And over and over and over again, I kept saying, I don't know, 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 I don't know. Wow. And in the moment of the most profound grace, I made that longest journey from the head to the heart. And I had a deep knowing that said, you cannot think your way out of the dark. You can only feel your way out. And I ate the lettuce. God damn. (laughs) Give me a moment. So, there's so much poignancy there. One of the things that was bringing me to tears was once you said, I don't know, the third time, I was like, oh, fuck, I'm remembering. Mm. And it gave me goosebumps. And it's, it's the remembering of, it's, now that I have felt what it feels like to be in my heart, I forget how much of my life was in my head. Mm-hmm. And that truly the like death <laughs> is that moment where the mind finally gives up. And that is such a beautifully symbolic story that captures like everyone listening. If you haven't had that moment, you need that moment. And mm-hmm. I hope it comes to you gracefully and as with a, a, the smallest amount of pain as possible. But honestly, it's the pain that needs to be in order for the mind to finally give up. And what's interesting is uh, my moment actually happened in a kitchen too. No way. Uh, I wasn't on my knees. I wasn't naked, but I was on <laughs> five grams of mushrooms. And um, the big thing I was trying to do with my life, I realized, oh my God, I can't. And that there was this, it was much less graceful, but it was the, I don't know. And my response was to go run for two and a half hours on five grams of mushrooms around my neighborhood barefoot. So mm-hmm. don't recommend, but, <laughs> and I, I absolutely love. One of the things that I have found is when people are, there's a specific type of suicidality where you are essentially choosing that you're going to kill yourself, but you haven't. Um, and you're not in immediate danger. And it's something that you're about to choose where a voice comes in. Mm. And I have a specific example. Um, and I've kind of collected examples that have arisen through the work that I've done on the podcast and the books that I've read. And uh, for you, it felt like you finally got to that point where it was essentially like utterly giving up. Mm -hmm. And it's like in the presence of the ego, utterly and fully given up. And it's not something you can ever fake because the thing waiting for you to give up is the thing that's also you and it knows if you're lying or not. (laughs) But, But then it comes in. And the thing that I find is it gives like a single statement like the one that I got was take responsibility one moment at a time. 
Um, another that I've heard is uh, Buckminster Fuller is kind of a famous inventor and he was going to kill himself because he created a business with his wife's father and it failed. And he's walking into the lake and he hears the, this voice and the voice says, your life is not yours to take. You have gifts still to give. Wow. And uh, I have another friend who, um, I, I forget what his one was, but there's something about the psyche and that this feels like it's that story. And the way you told it, oh my God, you need a fucking podcast. I'm wow. here. I'm here. <sighs> Heard. So please, um, you have the breakthrough mm -hmm. to feel your way. Then what unfolded? And in many ways, that's really the start of the healing journey. Um, and what it turns out is the body knew how to heal all along. Get him. Yeah. And I... stopped intellectualizing the disease anymore. Eventually, soon after I stopped identifying with diagnoses anymore, um, that came through meditation too. I'll tell you that in a second. Um, but in short, I let the heart lead the way out of illness, the heart body lead the way out of illness. And the truth is, and this is very, um, it's scary in a particular way, that one of the first pieces of body wisdom I got once I opened myself to listening to it was a thought that had been, it had been telling me for years. And it's almost scary because the thought was so familiar, but of course it was also brand new. And I'm like, it has been telling me this thing all this time, which this thought was to get massage therapy very regularly, mm. which I just stuffed down. But I'm like, I'm a woman with intense systemic body pain. Like that's not such a crazy idea. But then once I had opened the heart to saying, the body's going to lead my way out of illness, I started listening to messages like that. Um, and massage therapy became an absolutely critical aspect of my recovery and is one of the few things that I do still very regularly, even as I'm much, much better. So I started listening to that wisdom of the body for what it wanted. And the truth is it knew the answers all along. I remember a moment early in meditation, which I resisted like the best of us for a long time. <laughs> And But a moment early in meditation where I sat down, I said, okay, I'm going to instruct the body on what I want it to do, okay? And I asked myself, so I'm like, okay, what do I want the body to do? And I said, okay, well, do I have an autoimmune disease? In which case my biology and my immune system is acting up for no reason and there's no predator here and you're safe and you can calm down and relax. We're all good. Or do I have an infectious disease like Lyme disease and my immune system is revved up to fight the bad guy and do I tell it to stand up and go get him? You got this. Like stay revved up. And I burst into tears because I didn't know. I didn't even know what to tell the body. And finally, in another moment of surrendered, I surrendered through and said, the body doesn't speak in the language of diagnoses anyway. It knows how to heal. I don't care about that. I'm just going to speak in the body's language. And what's the language of the body? Massage feels good. The forest feels good. Cold water feels good. I like it when you sleep enough. That feels good. That's the language of the body. Get home, yes. And those were the messages I now became interested in heeding. And I did... And what's incredible is the body knows exactly what it needs. And so I started doing what it needs. And now over time, 
I've stumbled upon the research that explains right. why what I was doing was exactly the right thing for me, but I didn't have to wait to find that out. Mm-hmm. I got to just do it. And so the summer, so that was kind of spring 2017 when that fast was. The summer, I start kind of putting things back together. As you can imagine, there's m- many, many beautiful moments and epic stories, but I start kind of slowly putting a plan back together. And one thing I really wanted was a big health team. One of the real heartbreaks was I had this beautiful doctor who I'd worked with, the naturopath, but when it was time for us to part ways, one of the things that was so terrorizing about that was she was the only one that had witnessed how far I'd come, how much I had endured, how hard I had worked. Wow. And what made the experience so heartbreaking was I lost a person who knew my story. Who bore witness, yeah. Who bore witness. And so I knew next time I needed a, I needed a bigger team and I wanted a bigger team. And at this point, I had this deep body-based knowing that said, I'm also only interested in working with people who are rightful, licensed practitioners and whatever they do, but who also have been sick themselves and gotten better. Wow, that's such a good fucking And here's the reason parameter. why. A doctor will tell you, this is what I will do if it was my mom. And I say, I don't care what you would do if it was your mom. I want to know what you would do if it was you. And the only way for you to tell me what you would do if it was you is if you have done it before. Because what I find is illness, like some other things, is one of those experiences where you do not know how you will face it until you've had to face it. You will make decisions that you do not think you will make when it is real. And I wanted other people who had made those decisions who could tell me with a straight face what they did. So I recruited people like that. And the reason is because by this point, I realized I wasn't looking for a doctor. I was looking for a teacher. And I wasn't looking for a healer. I was looking for a guide. I understood I was the one who was going to have to get me out but I could talk to people who had been here before. I got to take a moment. You are motherfucking, I'm normally the one that I can feel, yeah, I just dropped a bomb. You are fucking, <laughs> one of the things that I feel and that I love, everything that you said is absolutely, oh my God, hallelujah. I want everyone to listen to this. But the thing that's happening for me is the clarity and the poignancy and the power in which you are speaking, I think is the byproduct of being a good writer. Like, I really feel that, like, the the thing that writing does is it, like, I can feel that you've written these words, like, before. Like, and it's it's what gives me my, like, sauce, too. And just from, like, one writer to another, I, I've never written your technical or professional work, but I can tell that you're a great writer. And also, I... L- I just love everything that you just fucking said. It's so good. Wow. <laughs> Keep going. I'm doing jazz hands for you people on the phone. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I recruited a team that looked like that. And there was a painstaking slot, uh, process to let, select my doctor, which I'll spare you that whole story. But it was very epic. It involved a childbirth and a breakdown on a rooftop. You get it. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so I put this team together. Everyone down to my massage therapist, sick and got better. The owners of the float tank. I would also accept you had a child who got sick and you helped get better. That was okay. also acceptable. The owners of the float tank started. The sensory deprivation float tanks was critical. Absolutely critical to my recovery. The owners of that 
their child was sick. They helped them get better. That's how they got to what they do. My doctor, everybody. You had to have that. And granted, I'm incredibly privileged and could pay for the kind of medical counsel that I wanted. And that is all absolutely true and embedded in my story. And I recruited a team of people who had that kind of background. And um, that was probably one of my favorite moves and and intuitions was to build a team of people who had been there before. And so then over the course of summer and fall and winter, 2017, 2018, I'm starting to really kind of get my flow. The fast was absolutely the the lowest point fit on physical health. And at this point, I'm starting to crawl my way back out of the hole. I don't get worse, more worse than I was than that fast in 2017. And now I'm starting to, no symptoms are starting to come off yet, but I'm starting to move my way and crawl my way out of um, the hole of illness. And I'm doing a lot of treatments. I had a whole separate calendar just for my health stuff. And, you know, once or twice a day would be doing some kind of treatment or some kind of another. So I was incredibly aggressive during this time. And that gets me to kind of early 2018. I'm working again by this point. I started something at the end of 2017. And then I get this deep wisdom kind of in late winter, early spring 2018, which I'll just, I'll just also share. My healing started to become very aligned with the seasons, which became interesting. And I saw big shifts happen at the season changes. And for me, the shift into spring was always the biggest one. And that's not something I thought would be cool. It's just what happened, you know? And so it's into spring 2018 that I'm starting to get this deep pull toward nature. And I get this call that's very unusual. A lot of this stuff is very unusual that I wanted to be in cold water and in the forest. Now, I grew up outside of Tampa, Florida, and I actually talked about how how I could never swim anywhere except for Florida. Everywhere else was just too hot. So to want to, uh, too cold. So to want to be in cold water was very unusual. My also go-to in nature relaxed background is the beach. So to be called to the forest was also very unusual. And I was living in DC. And so I'd go spend a weekend here, there out in Virginia somewhere and kind of test it out. And it was clear that that is what I was supposed to do. And so for the summer of 2018, I, for the most part, take the summer off of work. I find, or this magical place in Oregon finds me and I'm somehow drawn to, um, this unbelievably beautiful river known as the Mackenzie River, um, about an hour east of Eugene. And I go spend my summer in this forest. And I have this knowing that all the stuff that I've been doing for like nine months to aggressively treat the health, which is very, very much working, I have this deep knowing that I have to stop all of that for a minute and just let the body repair. Interesting. And in fact, there was one treatment that I was iffy about if I would keep doing in the forest. I hadn't like fully made up my mind, so I I brought it with me and I thought I could make up my mind. It spoiled on the airplane ride over. So I'm like, <laughs> the only wisdom I needed, I'm not supposed to do any of that. All I'm supposed to do is be in this forest, swim in that 44 degree river water and meditate. And I had exactly one yogic set. By this point, I had begun practicing kundalini yoga, which has been a big part of my path. And I had been exposed to Joe Dispenza early on and then like as a teenager and then again throughout this illness thing. And um, a teacher had designed for me 
the kundalini practice I was going to do out there in the forest. And I said, it doesn't matter what I'm doing the other 23 hours in the day. But for one hour a day, I'm doing the set like it'll save my life. <laughs> and it did. I went out to the forest knowing I cannot walk out of here the way I've come in here. I have to be different walking out than walking in. And I was open to my profound healing moment where like I shat out everything or barfed up everything or whatever, you know, I was ready for it. And it wasn't like that. I didn't have that there. It was a steady something. I really believe now, um, it's so funny because when I first imagined, because I was dreaming up this place, I've never, I had never been to where I went. I'd also never really been to the forest, you know, but it's just like I saw it in my mind and had to find it. And, but when it was in my mind at first, it was a lake, but then I ended up being called to this river and I told a wonderful woman named Keisha, who was one of my practitioners who has gotten sick and gotten well and probably the most expansive person on the health team who could hold anything that I could bring to her. And I said, well, I found my place, but it's not a lake, it's a river. And she said, it's so important that it's a river. And I said, why? She says, the water has to be flowing. Which is not a wisdom I understood then, but it's a wisdom I very much understand now. And I believe that water flowing and that a river flowing, the same way it softens stone over time, softens the nervous system too. It softens our consciousness, our psyche, in exactly the same way as it does stone. And it's I believe nature massaging. Yeah, I believe just sitting in the presence of running water um, can change your life, really. And I would sit for those hours I wasn't meditating and the hour that I was meditating, listening to the water. And it changed me in subtle, fast ways. And on the other side of the forest, I went home. And now symptoms started coming off. And I had the first moment that I got back into Washington, D.C. And I woke up that the first night. And the mornings were always hardest with me. I was sickest in the mornings. I was most pain in the mornings, most tired in the mornings. And this morning I woke up still in pain. But there was no fatigue. And I didn't until that moment know that pain and fatigue were different. Wow. Or I had forgotten. Yeah. And it's like an iceberg falling off Antarctica, you know, just like, yeah, there's still a lot left, but oh man, a huge piece just came off, wow. you know? And so it started looking like that and stuff started coming off. Um, here's a fun st little story. During that time, I went to my first retreat with Joe Dispenza and it's very the, the full details, but in short, I got a, I got a piece of glass stuck in my foot. And I couldn't get it out. And I was really busy. So I left it in for like three weeks. I couldn't figure it out. Oh my God. I know, but I was really busy. <laughs> so I was walking around, but I also didn't know how to get it out. So for three weeks, I had a piece of glass in my foot. And then finally, when I had a second, I called my brother and I said, will you come get the glass out of my foot? And um, One thing I have to reflect. 
two things I have to reflect. One is there, I felt a part of you come out when you said, but I couldn't get it out. <laughs> that felt like, uh, like a older woman with a lot of power that knows that she can just look at people and say the thing that's not the truth with a smile and like get to the next thing seen heard felt and the second thing is um i know that you have the awareness for this but that uh that like the bigness of life is so big i'll focus on that and ignore the pain mm -hmm. for three weeks yeah is is a beautiful microcosm of the macrocosm yeah of your story what do you mean of having felt the symptoms um, and just being like three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> so I get the glass out the night before I go to my first Joe Dispenza thing. And we've had a piece of glass stuck in your foot for three weeks. It feels very good to have it out. <laughs> it really does. And actually you feel the sensation of it being out mm. for a, for several days mm. because you had it in for so long. And what that physical sensation was, was relief. And I said, memorize this feeling, Sarah. Memorize the feeling of relief. Get good at feeling relief. And that first time with that teacher, I worked with how can I feel this everywhere? And it was in some months of that that I got to ultimately the other side of illness. And now my story of my full exit from illness was that dramatic moment that I was open to in the forest and was ready for, but it didn't come there. It came nine months later in the spring. And I did have my profound moment. And... um it was incredibly challenging. And the moment was, I had two days of intense suicidal ideation. And if you had asked me before that time, Sarah, have you ever thought about killing yourself? I would have been like, yeah, probably. Yeah. Ask me now, had I ever previously had those kinds of thoughts? And I'd said 100% no. This is a different experience. And luckily, I was an experienced enough meditator by that point that I said, oh, it seems like you're having some challenging thoughts. Why don't you spend the day in bed? Which is what I did. Um, but they're incredibly challenging days. And on the other side, for the first time, I was May really... May I ask, um, for I think most people now listening to this uh, were where you were at before you had these two days where they were like, yeah, maybe mm -hmm. I have. I would love if you could try to articulate like the felt sense of how it's different. I'm personally curious and I think it would actually serve the audience. And that because you're a gifted writer, like you've got the ability to grok. One is, like the physical sensation of the emotion. Like it's was a darkness, so darkness for lack of a better term, so 
palpable that it was almost like its own energy. For example, I remember one time having to brace my arms against the wall as holding myself up as this wave passed over me. Only thing I can think is maybe like a contraction in childbirth or something where it's like this intense bodily wave that came over me. But it wasn't a physical pain that I was used to. This was a kind of like emotional pain (laughs) that hit you like a wave. So I felt that. And I guess the only thing I would say as being another kind of difference was like, it was just so all-consuming. It was just so total. And I had, even in this moment, deep empathy for people who feel those feelings regularly. Because I'm like, oh my God, how can you do anything? Like, it's hard to do much of anything else when these sensations are happening, you know? And I had a deep, deep empathy that that would be really challenging. So I guess I would say is the more totality, like the total of the experience. It didn't, here's, here's what I'll say. The best, all I could do was lay in bed. Doing anything else on those days wasn't, wasn't really in the cards. Um, and by the grace of God, it was, it was only two days. It was one day, one month, and one day the next month. So they weren't even back to back. And I was really troubled initially by that experience because I had developed such a strong faith in the body. Like I knew any symptom, even if it was challenging, the pain, the fatigue, the digestive issues, I knew it was just the body healing and the body doing its thing, that the symptoms were the healing. I knew that the pain is the healing, the fatigue is the healing, the fever is the healing, the cough is the healing. I knew all that and I developed this incredible trust in the body and I never really questioned its wisdom. I knew it was always doing what it needed to do. But when it served me this... I was really troubled because I was like, I have proven to the fullest extent a human being can prove that I want to live, that I will do anything to stay alive. So why now are you serving me this? And I didn't know until I knew. And within some time, days or weeks, I don't remember, was the first, my, first time I caught myself saying, I'm Sarah. I was sick. And the first time you catch yourself speaking in the past tense, you just erupt with the flood of emotions that says, what do you mean I was sick? And all I know is it was the truth. Whatever part of me that was sick died in those days. And I was born again into the same body, a different person, the same person. It's just more fully revealed. It's very infrequent that I, as the host, need a fucking minute. There's a few things that arise. One is um, one of the things that I'm called to as like this is the dragon I want to slay before I die is the core of your message and your story 
is that if you can get to a place where you can listen to the wisdom of your body, it will take you where you need to arrive. What our culture does instinctually in response to trying to treat mental disorders with the current set of tools that we have is we damage we artificially damage the body's ability to authentically communicate to our intelligence in a way that can guide us home. And that if you take those things long enough, and of course, this is not medical advice. There's great books I can offer and things I can say to defend this idea, but I trust the research I've done. And long story short, they're great in the short term, taking long term, they're bad. It's very dangerous to get off of them. But I had a call with someone two days ago where he um, was sick for a long time, had a concussion, didn't know how to heal it, went to a rehabilitation center, and his nice way of putting it is they gave him a lot of pills and a lot of Mm Band-Aids. And he did that for like two years and it didn't really work. And then he lost his job. He couldn't pay for anything anymore and he went cold turkey. Don't do that. He had, I believe, six to seven months of like schizophrenic hell mm-hmm. where like he could not connect to the intelligence of his body. And your story is just such a poignant, beautiful example of if it's unobstructed, it will bring you home. And I felt myself starting to get teary-eyed because I feel like, what the fuck would my life be like if I treated my body the way I treat ayahuasca? Mm. Like if I really bowed to it and allowed it to be the ceremony every day. And like one of the things that's just heavy to feel into is um, I've had on and off back pain Mm -hmm. for a decade now. And whenever my back pain gets bad enough where it really brings me to like that place that you only know when you're deep in pain or deep in illness Mm -hmm. is like, I treat my body like I am a psychopathic like horse trainer. <laughs> like I do not fucking hear you. Do what I say. I will ask the impossible of you. And when you fall short, I'm going to hit you. Like it's like the vibe of some part of me. And just like I love how you treated your body like it was the medicine it was the ceremony and you were bowing to it and like i i've cultivated that level of connection with ayahuasca like mm-hmm. i can feel that like the the like sacredness and the i bow before you and as your humble servant i will do what you ask type of vibe that you created with your body that brought you out of this i've cultivated that with something outside of me right and i can just feel the poignancy of like it's almost like my body whispering what if you did that with me? Wow. So I love that. And the second point is, now I feel like I forgot, but it was really good. What was the... Whatever, I'm just going to let it go. Okay. Yeah, the body is the only thing that can never fail you. Get on your a cut on your finger. Try to make it not heal. Just leave glass in it for three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I got to the other side. Um, 
the other side of illness, you know, I think I assumed it would be when all the symptoms are gone. The other side was that. And symptoms still came off with their time on the other side of that. When the pain went, that was a really, really big one. That was the biggest one. And I got fully well. Um, think the two I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which both have gotten much, much better, um, but still will get a final round of healing in their time. Um, are things remaining, but I am, I pulled myself completely out of the hole of illness. And so that, honestly, so I'm just going to be frank with the listeners and with you. There's a part of me that wants to get into everything else that we know that we have here. But that story was so poignant that a part of me feels like it's almost wrong to tell another story on top of it in the same podcast. And so I want to voice to you what feels right and we can go with it. But that did feel like a thing to <laughs> share. Yeah. I'm open. I could do, I can do round two if it feels right or. To stay in sync with the message of this uh, podcast, I invite you to take a moment. Ask your body. Does the body want the container of this podcast to be that story only mm. or do we go more i'd love to go more let's go okay where do we go from here so If you can believe it, the most excruciating part of the illness journey was the moments after getting well. Because I've learned all this about health during the journey, and I knew so many of the ways that our society is making people sick. But it's like all of that information I had been consuming, it's as if my head was down and I was directing all those learnings to me to get better. Mm. the sensation of getting well was the sensation of picking my head back up mm. and looking around. And now immediately, all of that wisdom I applied to me, I saw with a snap in the society. And I knew... With the lack of the wisdom being applied in the society. Yeah. And what I knew, it's like, again, knowings I've had the whole time that now I'm letting to surface. An example of one of those, which of course I knew, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks, was how sick my family had been. You know, and my father had his first heart attack at 41, second at 48. My mom had Hashimoto's thyroiditis at 21 and lupus at 48 and uterine cancer at 52. And my sister had had Hashimoto's thyroiditis at 21 and I had felt very, very sick. And I have an adopted brother who has his own issues, mostly from prior to joining my family. And like a wave, I had this deep knowing that oh, it is not just me. And that was a much harder pill to swallow because if it had just been me, you know, I could have drawn the short straw or it's got to happen to somebody. But this deep knowing that we are doing this to so many people was an, 
unbearable realization. And immediately I, because I had all this new energy too, that I wanted to help, right? And then my frenzy was like, here's what we need. And I'm like, okay, we need a lobbying group for people with chronic illness and I'll be a lawyer, you know, on these issues. And I had a bunch of ideas that were great ideas. Somebody should do them. But they just clearly weren't mine. And at this particular period, in 2019, I wasn't working. I was, there was another period when I wasn't working. And so I was like, okay, I make these organizations and start these things and do all of this to bring this wisdom of how to heal chronic illness out into the society. And it was incredibly painful to see the society being so sick and to feel like I had so much that could help and not be helping. It was it, it was excruciating. It's the only it's the only word I can say is excruciating. The most painful part of the whole process. And but I knew by this point better than to rush something that wasn't right. And so I let it work through me. And I waited. And what eventually came up was it, but then but then I was ready to go back to work and so I began looking for work but you know I'm like okay well I'll go do something that feels important I said let me go work for somebody who knows what their thing is and I'll help them for a little while while I let whatever's going inside me digest and metabolize and I'll buy me some time and I'll help some other person out so in the summer fall of 2019 I met a young man named Sixto Cancel who is um founder of an organization called Think of Us, and he grew up in foster care and lived most of his life in foster care and aged out. And he knows exactly what his issue is and exactly what he's doing and had already made tremendous change. But what he was missing was exactly the thing I knew how to do, which is he knew how to do all this policy stuff. He didn't know how to do the implementation stuff, which is what I had studied in the Obama administration, which is how do we take policy and turn it into real services that actually work for people. And I said, well, that's the thing I know how to do. So I said, here's the guy who knows what his thing is. I'm going to help him. And in the meantime, I'll let all this stuff metabolize. And we've done some really good work together. And personally, my first, the two years that I've been at the organization have been this deep intense deepening of my meditative practice because basically what happened is I came out of illness but you keep continuing with everything that got you out <laughs> so now I get to be a student but who as well mm. and you don't really stop that path um my mom would say to me sometimes when I was sick she would say one day you will get well and you will be left with nothing but the lessons and so I was in that place where I had the lessons, but I didn't have to be sick anymore. And so I was deeply studying a lot of my teachers. I, I dug more deeply into kundalini yoga and meditation with one of my teachers, Guru Jagat, and became a teacher and studied more intensely with Joe Dispenza, who I had known about for a long time, but studied him more deeply in this period and joined Fit for Service and was really, really, really digging into my depth of understanding in the really 
the mechanics of the energetic world and how we relate to them. And that's kind of what I was spending all my personal time on. And in my professional time, I was helping transform foster care, which wasn't going too bad. (laughs) All of that leads us to a point um, in about September of last year when the events of 2020 had gotten leaders in child welfare to want to begin rethinking their stance on institutionalizing some foster youth. Um, Those reasons were COVID spreading more rapidly through institutions of all kinds, like prisons and nursing homes. Um, The more intense um, pressure and interest in looking at institutionalized racism and black youth and youth of color more likely to be institutionalized in foster care. And also the killing of a 16-year-old young man named Cornelius Fredericks in a Michigan group home for throwing a sandwich, the killing by staff. And these events had gotten leadership in child welfare to say, maybe we should think about institutionalization. And in short, we institutionalize roughly 10% of foster youth. Um, It can be up to 30% in some states. It's about 45,000 people a year. And these are people, foster youth are people we took from your home for one reason or another, ideally when there is the presence of true abuse or neglect, but too often it's for simply reasons of poverty. And we remove you from your family and your societal context, and we put you sometimes with kinship, which is people you already know, more often with foster care parents, which tend to be strangers, and sometimes in institutions. And sometimes there are medical reasons for institutionalization and but too often it's simply because we are under this belief that there's, quote, nowhere else for you to go. And so some leaders in child welfare asked my organization, we'd kind of, people like my boss Sixto had been in their ear for too long. Um, and they said, hey, we're thinking about a policy change, but, you know, you've been telling us we shouldn't come out with big changes before we talk to young people first. So maybe we should talk to some young people first. And they said, will you go as fast as you can talk to a bunch of young people who've recently been institutionalized in foster care and tell us about their experiences. So we did that and I led that team. In short, this is the thing I've had the privilege to do in government, which is to go talk to real people who use services and then go back to the leaders in charge and say, these are the way the service is broken and here's how we might want to change it. This is the fundamental gap in the way our government is broken right now because people don't know you can do that. People don't have to pay me to go talk to foster youth. They can just go talk to foster youth. (laughs) But in the meantime, I will do this job with gladness. It is beautiful. But in short, all government programs should just be going and talking to the real people that are using them and co-creating the government together. We don't really do that. Yeah, a quick thing to... um know is there was a huge survey that was done i forget by who but millions of people took the survey and it was about how they felt about their job mm-hmm. and it's something like uh 13 of people who are working um actively enjoy their job uh something like 26 percent of people basically are just doing the bare minimum and they fucking don't like it mm-hmm. uh no i'm sorry i got that wrong uh, so there's the 13%, then there's the like uh, 60-some percent that just don't, they don't like it, but they do it because they have to do it. But then there's that that in-between number where those are the amount of people who not only hate their job, actively seek to 
inhibit the goals of the institution mm. that they're a part of because they dislike it that much. And so from a psychological standpoint, only 13 to 18% of people who are working are positively engaged to be proactive. Mm. And I don't know how that overlaps with governmental institutions, but um, that is the situation that we're working with. That's really interesting. And the bureaucracy has this flavor of the way that it works that is so punishing and so damning that it really beats out what you could call innovation. Um, it really beats that out of the system. It's just not the nature of the way the bureaucracy works. And so even if you're one of those people that, you know, was really going to do things different, it's, it's difficult to keep that posture over time with inside a bureaucracy. And so we went and talked to a bunch of young people who had recently been institutionalized in foster care. And we did it very fast. And I led this team in September, October 2020. And this was right around the time you and I were meeting. And we talked to a bunch of young people in one-on-one -on -one interviews. And by the way, everyone we talked to was, was an adult, either 18 to 25. But we were talking to them about their time as a child and being institutionalized. And we talked to people through interviews. And then we talked to people through... Um, basically these creative prompts. We wanted to give people, in part, because sometimes people who've experienced trauma don't always want to engage in a one-on-one -on -one setting. We wanted to give alternative ways for people to respond. And so we gave these creative prompts where people could submit a creative response on their own time and then submit it. And so we asked people things like, what would you submit to an art gallery about your time in an institution? What would you submit to a hypothetical um, open mic night about your time in an institution. What's a photograph that reminds you of a time? And um, I brought a couple of those poems with me. I thought that might, this might be a good time to share one. What do you think? Yes. Okay, cool. There are two that feel really special. I'll start with one and we'll see if we want to do a second. So this is what a young person submitted to the question, what would you what would you speak at a hypothetical open mic night about your time in a group home? And this person asked not to be attributed, so I'm not going to say their name. And the poem is called 24. 24 kids under one roof, numbered like cattle and treated like a spoof, clawing my way to the top of this hierarchy set in place because those in charge set it out to be a race. To be number one is all I wanted. To be number one was all they told us to be. More outings, more privileges, they would say. Crazy to think they pinned us against each other instead of letting us play. Alone I felt with no friends in sight. On the swing set, I would try to avoid any fight. Back and forth I'd rock, swinging too high, hoping it was enough to let me fly. Over the fences they placed us in. Being only nine, I could not win. They told us horror stories about those who ran away. So I clipped my wings and decided to stay. One phone call a week, I could hear my brother. So sad and alone, we needed each other. The call always ended in tears. Alone back, I would be with my fears. 24 kids there was under this roof. 24 kids all searching for proof.
The next poem was written by Sheila Mae Sommerfeld. The Forgotten Ones. Inside, I still feel like this lost nine-year-old child, corner of her room, hugging her knees, scared, lost, and completely alone, intimidated by the world going around. Institutional routine, staff switch, day-night, sign above the dotted line, thank you next. We are like zombies, highest dosages the doctor can prescribe. Indestructible four walls and a bulletproof window, impossible to escape this hell. Regardless, there's nowhere to go. Like prisoners, like dogs, accepted and excused by the public eye, loved and cared for by none. We are the forgotten ones that unwillingly surrendered our souls, wishing this nightmare could just be done. To the devil I sold my soul, a dozen heads roam round slow, hopeless, lost children, institutionalized and hating themselves. No clue what life could have been like if another human being in this world, so large, could have seen the potential my eyes promised, glowing green eyes, filled with strength, outshining, glistening with hope. They screamed the need to be loved, but my destiny was already wrote. Yeah, I've got nothing to say. Yeah. Other than thank you to them for writing that so that you could bring it to the people you brought it to. Yeah. One thing I moves me so much in that first poem is this line gets me every time. You know, they told us horror stories about kids who ran away. So I clipped my wings and I decided to stay. And what I love about that is the agency still. Mm. Mm. That this young person in the face of impossible unfairness claimed that it was within their agency to decide how to handle the situation. Man, there's two things. One is um, there's like a spiritual belief that we choose our lives before we're born. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of me that whenever I hear that, uh, he's angry Mm -hmm. and he's like, that can only come out of the lips of someone who is blind to their luck. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I believe that angry part. Um, I've had enough experiences where that angry part, um, I don't know if he's right, but it's still there. And when I hear and feel these stories, you know, that angry part is stirred. Another one is um, Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning. 
and I talked about the and the way these podcasts will come out. This was a big part of the last podcast, but it's it's so it's such a poignant part of my psyche, and it's that that man in Auschwitz could write the sentence that the last of the human freedoms is man's ability to choose essentially how he interprets his situation, how he responds to his situation. And like, I don't know if that person ever read that book, mm-hmm. but that they're without realizing it through that poem, articulating the same like human like spiritual invincibility if claimed and in some like tragic way still touching that truth and yeah i want to hear how this will make me feel better because that's incredibly heavy it is incredibly heavy and so what my team and i did is went and held a lot of stories that looked a lot like that. And for what it's worth, we specifically recruited people that self-identified it as having good, bad, and average experiences in institutional placement. So we weren't seeking out the worst stories or just the worst stories. But what we heard through the poetry and through the interviews was the worst things that can happen to human beings. And I'll let you use your imagination. And we emerged as a team in the span of those few weeks different than when we walked in and came to a conclusion internally that we were calling for an end to these kinds of placements in foster care. And so we write this report. I click send when we were out in Sedona last year and some of your concepts had helped me tie a few pieces together, which felt very important and critical for me. And really our job was to share these stories of 78 young people, but string them together in a way where we could pull out some of the meaning of what was being said. And a lot of this was really challenging. I mean, some of it was straightforward, but I'll tell you just the most challenging piece that we had to really work for through as a team is we'd sit through these interviews. They were 90 minutes. They're kind of long. And, um, with many people having just told you the worst things that can happen to people. And then at the end of the interview, and we asked you things like what kind of food did you eat there and what kind of relationships did you have there and what was school like there? And we were really trying to get a broad sense of what the experience was like. And at the end of the interview is when we would ask young people about their opinions around reforming or ending or changing group homes. And after hearing a very challenging story from most, not everybody, but absolutely most of the people we talked to, we would ask them what did they think about reforming or ending them. And most young people said, we can't get rid of them. Which was very surprising after you just heard the story that you heard. And so we started dedicating more and more time in the interview to that portion of the questions because we were really trying to figure out what is going on and what are you really saying. And we found out that what young people were really saying is they had been told that these places exist because there is literally nowhere else to go. So the question they thought we were asking them is, should more youth go to prison or be homeless? And the response to that question is, of course not. 
And so we really worked together to say, well, we're not imagining that the solution would be prison or homelessness. What if there was a way to provide more family? And then that was a whole new idea. Because in many cases, these places are sold on the belief that there is nowhere else to go. And in some cases, we were talking with young people who had grown up in institutions or spent years in institutions. And for the first time, they were considering the possibility that it didn't have to be this way. And that's tough. And so we spent a lot of time as a team really teasing out what was going on there. And what we felt was when you got to a place where there was true better alternatives, that's what young people were saying that they wanted. They just didn't believe it was possible. So we do this thing very, very fast, frenetically copy editing and whatever in Sedona. We click send. We send it off to this foundation, which is who had hired us. And it always was just supposed to be this private report advising a handful of leaders on what young people think. It was never supposed to be public or anything. So we send them the report. A couple weeks later, we have a meeting about it where we basically present the same information, but in a meeting format. So we go to the meeting. We didn't hear anything between when we sent it and when we had the meeting. So we show up to the meeting, really not know, because it's a pretty bold claim, and the paper's pretty intense, and it's a bold claim that we're making, and so we really, did, we really, really did not know how this was going to go. And they show up to the meeting, which is Zoom, a Zoom meeting, and at this point, I have been in some pretty serious rooms before with serious people working on serious projects before. Um, we worked on the White House, many of President Obama's most urgent civilian crises. So I'm familiar with grown-up meetings. But what happened in this Zoom meeting is unlike anything I have ever seen happen before, which is when presented with this information, the people on the other side of the Zoom screen became, began breaking down before our eyes. There was a lot of on and off of the video camera. There was a lot of tears, a lot of crying through the talking. Some people said the report was difficult to read. And at first, I thought they literally meant the writing or the structure or something. But then I realized, they said, no, 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 it was excruciating to read. One person said, I had to break it up over many days because I couldn't read it all at once or... This felt like it was my penance. Reading this felt like my punishment for having been a part of creating the system. Wow. And everybody in that room has spent their careers either building, reforming, or running places like this ultimately. And the profound transformation I saw happen instantly was a thing that has changed me forever. I started hearing people say things like, I've dedicated my career to children and I thought I was helping, but I believe I may not have been helping. Or I feel an energy inside me to change that I have never felt before. Or we cannot leave this meeting until we change the system. So they said, okay, we know this is a private report, but will you just do another one of these meetings for a few more people? And so a couple weeks later, we did that. And again, not knowing what we were going to face, but essentially the same thing happened. And every time we did that, someone always went out of their way to say, and I'm so grateful that they did, 
none of this information is new. We already knew everything you were telling us. Which means to me, it's not the information that's new. But it's something about the way they're hearing it is new. Stories? I think... Let me tell you one other thing, and then I... Yes. So then they say, well, you present it to just a few more people. So now our private report is in front of a couple hundred people in January, including every state's child welfare director. And within two hours of the presentation, two Republican states come forward and say, because of your presentation, we've decided to end group homes in our state. Mind you, and I also want to give credit, there's decades, I mean, centuries, if you really want to talk about it, but decades worth of well-respected research around the harms of institutionalization. This is no my, means by any means like a first, it's sitting on a whole body of work. This was proving to be a straw, simply a straw on the camel's back, except for the straw was heavy, it turned out. And then we saw a, a deep push by some states to want to dramatically reduce or end these places. And then we were asked to no longer keep this private, but to prepare it for public consumption. And of course, it took us six months to prepare something to go public that took six weeks to write. And finally, we published it in July. But I have been changed since those first moments when we presented it privately and people changed before my eyes. And I was really stumped, you know, because I'm like, that thing that happened, that's the thing I want to be a part of. A thing happened, as you know from my story, which is I've always been interested in service and in, to helping to create a better world. I believe in that. But the story in Washington, D.C. is it takes a hundred years of killing yourself to change anything. And I bought into that story. Literally. Literally. And I got very, very sick. And then I restored my health. And I said, I'm no longer willing to barter, barter my health for change. So if I want to keep my health, I either have to find a different profession or we have to find a different way. Nice story. And we're going to need tools that are faster, that are more effective, and that promote my vitality instead of destroy it. And that moment in that Zoom room started to give me a taste of what that could be, which was instantaneous change. And I couldn't explain it using my government speak. So I looked to my yoga teachings to try to explain it. And I had just been through, at basically the same time, a, yoga, a kundalini yoga teacher training that was specifically focused on mantra. So it was all about sound. And, you know, the yogis love their sound. And they're all like, if you play this sound, play this mantra, it'll change, you know, you'll heal your body, we'll heal the planet, we'll save our government, just chant this one sound. You know, sound changes everything, sound is everything, everything started with sound, everything is sound. And, you know, I'm like, I'm inclined to believe you. I'm here and I think you're smart and I'm inclined to believe you, yoga teachers, but that teaching is pretty esoteric, <laughs> you know, that like sound will change the government or something. So when I was taking the course, I had to hold on to something that felt very tangible to me. So the thing I would hold on to was this image. And I said, okay, I know that if you get sound at a high enough frequency, you can break glass. I know that. 
So I know that sound can change form. And what is happening there? You're getting a frequency that is at a high enough vibration. It is so fast that when it hits the glass, the glass just can't hold it. It can't hold the frequency, so it has to shatter. How I make sense of what happened in those meetings is we surfaced the truth by going to real people who had experienced hardship, suffering, and surfaced their stories. That was the first thing. We got the real truth. Then we had to have a team that had to have strong enough nervous systems to hold that truth and then express that truth. And part of that looks like being able to go as many layers deep as honestly our nervous systems can handle to say what is the deepest truth of what they're saying. Because it's easy to get held up on many, many higher shallow areas, right? But we had a team that was able, because of the strength of the nervous systems, to go as deep as we could, which I think was deeper than a lot of people have been able to, to go as deep as we could at surfacing or understanding what the a deep truth was. Then we delivered that truth. And even that takes a very strong nervous system because it's easy to cry or get upset or have your voice crack when you're holding a very high vibrational truth. So even the ability, and it's not just me, it's my colleagues too, even the ability to express that takes a certain level of nervous system strength. I believe what happened is that because of those techniques, we delivered a truth that was such a high vibration that when it impacted the infrastructure of the bureaucracy shattered before our eyes. I believe that's what happened. And that's the kind of change I'm interested in. Not because, not because of anything except that we have a lot of problems and we don't have a lot of time and we're going to need tools that are a lot faster, a lot more effective, a lot more transformative than the ones that we've been leaning on. And now the thing I'm deeply interested in is how do we use techniques like that to solve some of our problems? Yeah, the thing that I feel coming up for me is like the foundational functional reason to do quote unquote spiritual work is to improve the integrity of your nervous system to be able to hold more powerful truths and then to speak them wow and that i could not agree more that we have a lot of problems we don't have a lot of time and everyone doing the spiritual work that's the first stage, y'all. And I feel like I'm at a pivot point in my life where I've done enough work on the nervous system to at least begin to be able to meaningfully engage with the structures that are made of glass. And that one of the things that was most poignant in my ayahuasca experience recently was... <clears throat> The unique gift that the human tribe can bring to Gaia, you know, and the plants are a part of the Gaia tribe, fungi, viruses, um, 
all sorts of organisms, humans specifically, we have the ability to consciously produce sound. Mm. And ultimately, we organize our sound as story and as song. Every medicine person who is a part of a medicine tradition that goes back thousands of years, one of their primary tools is sound and song. I think the thing that Western culture started to do more uniquely and powerfully is the storytelling, which is a type of song. And that all institutions have actually arisen from storytelling. Every institution is a story Mm. that we choose to believe in. But it's almost like the people who could tell the, who could sing the song that had the vibration of the truth that birthed the institution, Mm -hmm. they eventually die. And you get these echoes that get weaker and weaker and more stultified and more stultified and more stultified. And what I hear from you is the things, the institutions that are most ready for change will be changed by capturing the truth of those who are affected most directly by those institutions and then bring their song to the institutions and then let the truth do what it does. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I'm struck by, um, you know, you said after I read the poems, you know, that it was heavy, which it is. It's impossibly heavy. And a thing... And our, our, a thing I think a lot about is about our tolerance to handle that amount of harshness. Um, you know, I've worked in the belly of the beast. I worked in the White House for six and a half years. And, you know, I felt split between worlds in a lot of ways where professionally I've been in spaces like that. And personally, I've been in a lot of communities like Fit for Service and a zillion yoga and meditation retreats. And I love both those worlds, but they feel very p- far apart. And one of the things that is deeply, there's a lot of very important critiques of my colleagues and I in the government space. But one of the things that people fail to understand that is very important is that the people who are there have witnessed a kind of suffering that if you have not seen it, you do not understand. Like to sit in the room with people like this and hear their stories and the details of their stories and write about their stories. It is maddening. And the easier response is to close the heart and to get angry. The more sophisticated yogic response is to keep the heart open and let it break. But that, as we know, is very challenging. So many people close the heart and get angry. And it is easy to blame people because someone built these institutions and it wasn't me. So it's easy to blame people and point fingers and get mad as hell. And I get it because this stuff sucks. And insert any issue that it's important to you into this conversation. And so that what happens is what is actually just 
grief that's untended to hardens and calcifies into anger. And then we govern from a place of anger. We can take a moment to feel into whatever your issue is. Log into your Instagram. <laughs> Let the algorithm show you what you're angry at. Let the algorithm show you where you've calcified and shut your heart off to grief. I think why our current climate politically is so charged is because the rise of the internet and the rise of social media with the algorithms that govern it have brought us to have to face a level of grief at a scale that no human ever before has ever had to do because there weren't the tools of communication to show it to them. And I've never had this idea until right now, but anyone who is talking about the algorithms and social media, myself included, myself included, myself included, there's a tinge of the storytelling that's um, like blame, you know, that the algorithms are the reason why things are fucked up. But the interesting thing that I'm feeling too, into right now is what if there is some intelligence that is beyond human, that might be collective human wisdom, where we have unknowingly created a super intelligence, these algorithms, to make us face our grief. And that as a collective, because we're not trained in how to grieve, because one of our core stories is we can just do this right enough, we don't die. Yeah. And because we deny death, Grief is the feeling that is natural in the face of death. The death of hopes, the death of life, the death of dreams, the death of a current way of being that you thought would be the way. And so because we deny death, we deny grief. And because we deny grief, we know anger. And because we know anger, we have the situation that we have right now. And that maybe the alchemy is almost like a collective call to help people learn how to grieve so that they can keep their heart open, so that they can hold the truth of what they're seeing, and so they can transmit the truth from a place of compassionate sorrow mm -hmm. that might break glass. I'm with you. I could not agree more. Um, I didn't tell this piece of my story, but I say illness was my second teacher and grief was my first. Grief has been my truest teacher. And grieving is almost always the way. <laughs> yes. And yeah, I believe that that grief it's like that core human suffering, like reading something like what I wrote, which is called Away From Home, like reading something like that and hearing these horrible stories and feeling sad and having no space to grieve or not knowing how to grieve or being too afraid to grieve and then letting that calcify into anger and then being mad at whoever for doing whatever. Um, that core of the thing is so pure and so righteous. The world is unfair. There is injustice that is unimaginable. There is suffering that is maddening. Every member of my family has been sick. It is horrible. It is so sad. 
And to go back to that tender place that says, I'm so sad for a world that is so unfair. And I didn't create that world, but I live in that world. And I will mourn until there are no tears left for the fact that that is my truth right now. And then I will wipe my eyes. And with that cloak of grief having washed off me, I will say with a sober voice, what are we going to do? Grief is the thing that brings you back into reality. All of that anger is rejecting the world that we live in to say, I can be mad enough that I cannot live in this world. Grief says, I'm going to put both feet on the ground. I'm going to know what world I live in. And I'm going to say, there is another way. I want to end it there, but I feel you, you have one more story that feels like it's the way to end this podcast. And I'd like for you to share how the alchemy that you shared about vibration, um, how you shared it with your teacher. Okay. And if it makes sense, I also have a writing I wrote about my teacher about this that might make sense, a poem. And so I was starting to piece some of this together, you know, because I was like, how did we change the world in one Zoom meeting? <laughs> you know, how did that happen? And I was like, oh, maybe that's maybe something the yogis were telling me. Maybe there was some truth in that. And I was starting to piece some of that stuff together and I was starting to work it out in my brain and I was starting to play with it a little bit more and I was singing mantras into the book and I was praying to the book and I was like, oh man, there's some cool, we could work with this, right? And I was starting to figure that out. And then one day this summer, I was traveling to go spend a weekend with my Kundalini Yoga community, which is the Rama Institute based out of Venice. And I was going to Northern California to be with them for a weekend at a retreat. And all the teachers were going to be there, including the, the primary teacher, Guru Jagat, who I was also closest with. And on the plane ride there, I, I, I got this urgent feeling, not scary or weird, but just urgent, that I had to send her a message. And it was weird because I was going to see her in a few hours, and I could tell her then. But I knew I had to send the message now. So I wrote this email about how what they taught me in that mantra training, I had applied to shifting the fabric of the government. And, and um, I was so clear that I needed to send the message that I actually didn't even finish writing it on the plane. And some people were waiting for me outside the airport, but I got off the plane and I sat next to the gate and I finished writing my email and sent it and said, those people can, can wait, I have to send this email. And I sent the email and I met the people and we drove to the place. And when I arrive, I find out that Guru Jagat had just been hospitalized. And it was very serious. She had a blood clot, but it had been caught and it looked like she was going to survive. And so the message was to keep going with the retreat because even though it was, had been serious, it was caught and she was going to be okay. So we'd proceed. And so all the other teachers were there and the whole community was there and she was back in L.A., at the hospital. She's 41 years old. And the first days were all 
and so I, you know, start to get the sense of, oh, maybe this is why I had to send her the message, you know. And the first days were good, all fine. We were all kind of check, asking how she was, and it was all good. She posted on Instagram. And then it was the Saturday night before the Sunday morning that we left, and um, something shifted very quickly. And we didn't know what it was, but we all gathered in meditation and sang the miracle mantra in Kundalini. So we chanted for several hours this Kundalini mantra. And I had a very, very important experience happen there, which I can share some other time. But, you know, we all knew we were praying for our teacher's life. And what we didn't know had happened until someone told us later was that she had flatlined. And we chanted until she came back, which she did. And then in the morning, we all left thinking we had had our miracle. And then we find out that later that evening, Sunday evening, she passed away. Now I knew why I had to send the message. And I didn't have the ego that said, oh, did she read it? Did she whatever? You know, I just, I felt like I knew I had a message to send and I sent it in time and she got it. And I felt good. But at the funeral, a couple days later, her teacher, Harjuan, Harjuan's wife came up to me and she said, because I had copied Harjuan on the email, and she said, you, you're who wrote that email, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, Harjuan read your email immediately. And he called me and he said, did you read it? And she said, oh, I skimmed the beginning. This is his wife. And he said, no, you didn't read it go back and read it. She said, and then he called Guru Jagat on her hospital bed, and he said, you have to read this. And I said, I didn't know. I didn't need to know that she read it before she died. And she said, oh, but she did. What you sent is what we're trying to do. We are trying to change the world. And now I know that the universe wouldn't have wasted the precious final moments of my teacher who was invincible with a message that didn't matter. They wouldn't have wasted her precious remaining energy blessing something that didn't absolutely need her blessing which has helped me become more serious about this idea of spiritual activism and combining these technologies. And as another teacher in my group said, you passed her the ball right before she died. Now she's broadcasting it up from a lot higher places than this. And that's a wisdom streaming out to the heavens. That will change the way we do it. God, you're a good storyteller. I would invite you, if it feels right, to end the podcast with a poem. I would like to do that. And we'll remind you, you said something about the Wizard of Oz, but we might be past that. Damn, you're right. All right, let's answer that question and then close with the poem. Okay. okay. If you had to tell the Wizard of Oz story in your own words... Like you were telling it to a smart child before bed. 
How would you tell that story? Once upon a time, there was a girl on the brink of womanhood who loved her life on a farm in black and white, but knew in her bones there's a world full of color. And as she sang her heart song about a world of rainbows, when she sang the final note is when the storm came, an epic one, violent, changed everything. And the girl on the brink of womanhood could not get to safety in time. So she ran to the house and sat in her room as the house began to fly. Through the storm, the wind crackling, terrifying. And with moments that felt like lifetimes, the house fell to the ground. The dust began to settle. The wind stopped. She stood up and opened the door to a whole new world that impossibly was in technicolor. She steps outside to see everything that is different, the people and the sound and the landscape, and she has a deep knowing. I am lost. I am not home. I don't know how to get home. She finds out that there is a witch who is going to obstruct her path. She finds out also that simply by arriving in this new world, she had already slain the first witch. In this moment of impossible lostness, a path appears and it is golden and she takes the path to the wizard who she is sure will save her. There are no forks on this path until there is. And it's the first time she has to make a choice. And it's in here she encounters her first friend who has lost something too. But what he has lost is not home. It is his mind. And they journey together until they meet a new friend who has lost his heart. And together again until the one who has lost his courage. She invites him to the wizard to save all of them. And while she can't walk the path for them, she finds it is better when you are walking with friends. And there are obstacles and there are encounters with the witch and they defeat them and they make it to the wizard 
who is going to save them. And he says, You must do for me first an impossible task. You must slay the other witch. And the girl who is on the brink of womanhood, she has terror in her eyes, but she knows what she must do. There is no going back now. And they journey to the heart of the witch's domain, her castle, the most terrifying place. The only thing more terrifying is turning around and walking away. And they face their witch with no plans on how to slay her. And they find themselves cornered on all sides by her guards. There is no escaping. And finally, the witch gets up to them with her tool in hand, ready to kill them. When, by the grace of God, the man who has lost his mind puts water on her and the witch melts to the ground. They have slayed their witch. They have done the impossible. And they journey back to the wizard in their triumph to say, we did what you have asked. We have slayed the witch. And he said, I thought you would fail. I gave you an impossible task so that you would fail. I have never been able to get you home. And the woman closes her eyes, devastated and betrayed, and summons a will inside her that tells her that maybe all along the power to return had been inside of her. And she projects with all the strength inside of her one simple thought. Home. And the next time she opens her eyes, she sees a familiar world in black and white. Only now, it's through eyes that can see in color. And she discovers the most extraordinary thing. She has been home all along. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) I told you it was my favorite movie. So the reason I asked that story, or I asked that question, is that it seems to be that we are drawn to the story that mirrors what our story will be, that on some level we know. And what I hear in that story is your um, adventure through your healing and your sickness. And you told that story fucking well. (laughs) 
let's land this ship. This is probably the longest podcast I've ever done. Perfect. It's on brand for your and I's conversations. Yes, yes. Uh, please share your poem. Thank you. This is what came up for me when my teacher, Guru Jagat, passed away at the age of 41. It's about grief. Grief is the teacher of a course that no one signs up to take. Each semester, grief enters an empty classroom, yet grief's mandate is to advance its teachings, so it hand-selects its students. Grief knows its coursework is brutal, so it tries its best not to discriminate. You know when a new student is chosen by the look in their eyes, equal parts, terror, and knowing. Grief enrolls you in a flash, stripping you of someone you love, some essential part of you, something that you were sure was inseparable from you. Grief takes exactly as much as it must to teach you, but no more. Grief takes what you were certain you would die without, yet grief leaves you alive. Grief's first assignment is to answer this question. If you have lost something that you believed was you, but you have remained alive, who then are you? After your selection, grief's graduates rush to your side. They know that look, that terror, that knowing. The graduates weep for what they know you will endure. Through their tears, they direct you firmly. I am sorry you have been selected, but there is no going back now. Grief is a master who will reveal the secrets of life in a way nothing else can. Learn from your teacher. In your suffering, grief shows you the truth. Grief opens a portal to heal anything that has ever hurt you. Grief quiets your life, steps on your chest, so even the sound of your breath is silenced, so you can hear the whisper of destiny. Grief requires that you become bigger than you allowed yourself to be. Grief stretches your heart far, far beyond what you can take. Grief reveals the depth of your love. Sometimes, grief's graduates are chosen again for advanced coursework. The material does not get any easier, but you have greater confidence in your teacher. Painful, precise, cutting, necessary. Grief customizes its teachings for each student individually. Always, though, the course ends with the same test. For the final exam, grief asks, please demonstrate in front of the class how to keep an open heart as you lose what you have loved, most of all. Pass the test, and you become a keeper of the secrets of life.
Only at your moment of graduation does your teacher remove a cloak you never knew it was wearing. Only then you discover your teacher was named Love all along. The quote that comes to mind is, let your words improve upon the silence and mine won't, but I have a podcast. <laughs> Sarah. Wow. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you.